0: Today's first scripture reading is from Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Blessed are those who help; whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God of Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Today's scripture readings from Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Again Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them, rather it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his present secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an, an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive
1: Well, we gather for worship this morning on a cool late summer day amidst the arrival of suffering and bewildered Afghan refugees and the homelessness, deprivation, and death brought on by the floodwaters and twisting winds from Louisiana to New England, not the least in our neighboring city here in Annapolis. It's right and good that we should gather. For worship is the true source of whatever strength or wisdom we who follow the true one Lord of the world is made available to us. So, let's bless one another. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, our Father, we gratefully acknowledge that Your name is holy. We come before you this morning in the Messiah, in King Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Cover us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. So that the words I speak this morning and the thoughts we ponder together might be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Amen. What a... Strange little story being read for us there at the end of the passage in Mark. Here's Jesus, hunkered down inside a house, trying to be incognito. He's a couple days' walk from the familiarity of Jewish life in Galilee, stuck in the city of Tyre, a place crawling with Gentiles. And despite the best efforts to keep Jesus in a secure, undisclosed location, a Gentile woman comes calling. Now Mark calls her Greek, which was a first century Jewish way of saying she wasn't Jewish. We could also say she was a Canaanite woman from Phoenicia in Syria. Well, somehow this woman found out that Jesus was staying at this particular house so much for being secure and undisclosed. And she comes, despite being a Gentile, despite being a woman, to ask this Jewish prophet, teacher, miracle worker, to heal her desperately ill daughter. Well, where's her husband? Well, the fact that she comes alone probably indicates that she's a single mom. And you know how single moms were seen and treated in the first century? Unless she's part of a large and rich household, she's invisible, legally without standing, without access to honest work, and outside the social networks of protection and support. Desperate, invisible, forgotten. Nonetheless, with anguish determination, she pushes herself into the house Falls at Jesus' feet and asks him, pleads with him, to heal her gravely ill daughter, possessed by devils. Jesus' response is strange. Apparently, ignoring the woman's distress, he seems to change the subject. He starts talking about how children have a right to eat bread before it's given to the dogs. What's going on? What's Jesus talking about? Well, I'm sure the disciples picked up on Jesus' use of a common Jewish way of talking about Gentiles. Jews called Gentiles the dogs, and Gentiles called Jews even worse. No love lost here. But look, see how the woman responds. Not in anger, not with indignation. In fact, it looks as though she may have responded with a somewhat witty retort playing along with Jesus' analogy while continuing to press her case. In any event, she does not allow Jesus' comment to dissuade her. She presses on, humbly, persistently. Jesus obviously sees in reply an abiding trust, a tenacious faith in the power to heal her daughter, faith in the fact that Jesus is who he seems to be, a Jewish prophet, who'd come with a transformative message with a power to put things right, to restore, to heal. In short, a prophet who has the goods to deliver transformative justice for the weak, the outcast, and the forgotten. Acknowledging her trust, her faith in who he is, Jesus sends her on her way with a promise of healing, For her daughter. Now do you remember how the story ends? The woman doesn't doubt Jesus can heal her daughter even without seeing her or touching her or praying over her. She simply takes Jesus at his word, leaves the house, returns home to find her daughter healed. Okay, is this strange little story really about God's transforming justice? Well, I think it is, but maybe not in the way we first expect. Last week, Matt gave a great sermon on God's transformative justice. If you're not here last week or haven't yet seen or heard it, I urge you to go to wcfchurch.org slash sermons and listen in. In his sermon, The Word is a Mirror, Matt helps us see how God's transforming justice expresses God's very character and challenges us, both in our personal and in our public lives, calling for both individual and societal transformation. What today's lectionary reading did for me was to open me to the reality that God's transforming justice is defined within the gospel story God is telling, the good news of the inaugurated kingdom of his Son. Today's lectionary readings confronted me with this question. Where are you in God's unfolding gospel story, Jerry? Or put a little differently, how does the story that I am writing with my life, including my inherited beliefs, intersect with the cosmic yet intimately human gospel story God is telling about the renewal, the restoration, the setting right of God's creation, including those creatures who bear his image. While preparing this sermon on the God of justice who heals the forgotten, I began to understand in some fresh ways how God's transforming justice is the fruit of a manifestation, if you will, of the gospel story into which God invites us all. So here's the question for the morning. What is the story within Jesus' gospel announcement, that's rejected by Israel's religious leaders, is mistaken by his disciples, and yet received by a marginalized outsider, a Gentile woman? Differently, why was the call of transforming justice embedded in the gospel story, rejected by national religious leadership, mistaken by Jesus' own disciples, and yet received? by one who is considered irrelevant, invisible, and forgotten? Well, to address that question, we're going to have to see this strange story within the larger context of Mark 7. So first, transforming justice rejected. One of the difficulties with Mark 7 is that unless you're inside the first century Jewish world, it's hard to get the point. At the beginning of Mark's Gospel, he writes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Then he designs the rest of the book to help readers understand Jesus as the Messianic King by showing the amazing things that Jesus says and does, as well as how people responded to him. Some reject Jesus' true identity, others mistake who he is, and some Some believe who he is that he says he is. And we find all three things in Mark 7. Now, up until chapter 7, Mark has been telling stories of Jesus' miraculous healings. But suddenly, the healing stories stop, and we get an interlude with a debate instead. The debate is over a controversial interpretation and practice of Judaism by Jesus and his followers. In verse 5 of chapter 7 that Ben read for us, a group of Pharisees and legal scholars, emissaries of Jerusalem's authorities, asked Jesus why his followers aren't following Jewish purity laws before they eat. You see, by this time, questions are being raised in certain quarters about whether Jesus is a true prophet of Israel's God or a false prophet leading people astray from what it means to really be a Jew. Although the issue appears to be about Jewish purity laws, about what is clean and unclean, it's actually about Jewish identity. Two different ways of understanding what it means to be a Jew in the first century. It just isn't about ethics. It's about political agendas as well. N.T. Wright helped me see that the wider issue here is who is speaking for God? Is it the Pharisees? Or is it this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth? You see, for nearly 200 years leading up to the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had been building an agenda we would consider both religious and political. They had developed the traditions of the elders, which interpreted and applied the scriptures in certain directions in support of certain public measures, not the least a move toward revolt against Rome. So, How would the Pharisees read Psalm 146 from our lectionary reading this morning? Ah, those are words of comfort for the Jews. They would have said it is the people of Israel who were and are still bowed down and oppressed. It's the pagans, the dogs, whether Babylon, Babylonia, or Assyria, or Rome, had for centuries imprisoned, tortured, and starved them into submission. Now, sure, the law requires Israel to treat foreigners and orphans and widows with justice. But what drove the narrative of Pharisaical religious nationalism was the conviction that the Creator God, the maker of heaven and earth, would send the Messiah to liberate from the pagans their homeland, the Holy Land. He would destroy the Romans and vindicate the people of Israel by subduing all nations who would then pay tribute to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the whole city. Biblical purity were applied in the same way. Messiah and liberation would come only if Israel purified herself according to the traditions of the elders. Hardline Pharisees urged the people to show that they were true Jews, loyal to the law, loyal to the land, by religiously following these traditions. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, (laughs) urged the people to join a kingdom movement that challenged the entire Pharisaic project. If the kingdom was indeed coming in the work Jesus was doing, by healing, by feasting with outcasts, by rolling back the injustices of the kingdom of darkness, then the way the Pharisaic traditions of the elders interpreted Psalm 146 was quite simply the wrong way. So you see, who speaks for God is the burning question set before the Galileans that day. Jesus claims that what he is doing fulfills the scripture. Go his way and you get the scriptures too. Go the Pharisees way. And even though it supposedly is the basis of their tradition you undermine scripture and eventually lose it. So, as the debate concludes, Jesus turns and appeals to the Galilean crowd. He insists that eating in unclean ways is not what the law is all about. What goes into a person is not what defiles. Rather, it is in the place of origin of what comes out of a person that defiles. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites because they are play-acting as teachers of God's truth and law, but in fact, they are teaching human traditions of their own making. Now, Jesus challenges their ethics, their moral practices, but in so doing, he is undermining their whole edifice, dare I say, undermining their entire religious national ideology of what it means to be a true Jew what it means to be included in the coming renewed Israel of God. Well, now we know the answer to the first question. The call to transforming justice embedded in the gospel story Jesus announced was rejected by Israel's religious leaders because it challenged and undermined their religious nationalist story of Israel's liberation, her story of renewal, of her redemption, of her salvation. Okay, now on to the second question about disciples being mistaken about the gospel's transforming justice. After the debate with the Pharisees, Jesus retires to a home with his disciples. Evidently, the way Mark tells the story, Jesus had expected his disciples to get the point. Remember verse 18 that Ben read? Are you so dull? Jesus asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their Heart goes into their stomach. Then he lists all the things that the Jews of his day hated about the pagan Gentiles who oppressed them. Look at that list. I dare say, includes things we Christians find deplorable about the late modern society around us today. And Jesus, of course, nails the source. The defiled life issues from the human heart. Ouch. I know from my own lived experience, and I suspect you do too, how the heart can be so deceitful. Back in the house, Jesus had to explain to his disciples, just as he did earlier in Mark 4 with the parable of the sower, that he wasn't talking about physical things that come out of people. Such things as food are irrelevant to the purposes of purity. He's talking about things that come out of the heart. Sitting there with his disciples, Jesus gently yet firmly indicates the purity laws point to the real need humans have for a deeper purity, a purity of motive. Those who get stuck on regulations about food are quite literally missing the heart of the matter. By focusing on outward purity, they are avoiding the much deeper challenge of the gospel narrative. The challenge to the human heart. Now, let's not make the mistake the disciples do about what Jesus is saying here. Although they are convinced Jesus is the Messiah, they, like the Pharisees, still mistakenly put Jesus' gospel announcement somewhere somewhere within the narrative of Israel's religious nationalism. So today, in the same way, let's not us be guilty of stuffing the gospel into our late modern way of separating the spiritual life, which is high and good, uh, from the physical world, which is low and bad. As Leslie Newbegin, Dallas Willard, Janelle Paris, N.T. Wright have helped me see, Jesus is in fact precisely not saying that external and physical things are irrelevant or bad and that internal or spiritual things are good. In other words, he is not saying that if I learn to listen to what my heart is truly telling me, if I get in touch with my deepest longings and desires, I will discover my real identity and thereby discover happiness and fulfillment. No. What Jesus appears to be insisting is that good and bad external physical actions come from internal and spiritual sources. The physical and the spiritual are intimately intertwined. Therefore, the poisoned wells of human motivation are the real problem to which the purity laws are pointing. Well, reading the gospel story in this way, I came to see personally to what the purity laws were pointing for me. namely, Getting in touch with the feelings that are there in my heart does not mean those desires are therefore validated. On the contrary, it means I have a problem. And that problem runs right through me. Interestingly, Jesus does not, at this stage, explain to his disciples what the cure is to the disease within the human heart. Later in Mark 10, the gospel narrative clearly leads us to this point. Jesus is offering a cure to the problem of the human heart. But remember, Jesus does not set aside the purity laws. He says he came to fulfill them. You see, the gospel narrative claims that what happened in Jesus brought the old scriptures, the entire covenant with Israel, to a new completion, a new fulfillment. The scriptures spoke of purity and set up codes pointing to it. Jesus offers the reality. Now, when you arrive at your destination, you don't need signposts anymore. Not because they were worthless, but precisely because they were correct. So, what does this all have to do with transformative justice? But within the gospel narrative, the motive for true transformative justice is the renewed human heart. The motive for true transformative justice is the renewed human heart. The church early on from Pentecost onward began to believe and to behave in ways under the purifying presence and power of the spirit that reflected the scriptural call to justice. The law of the covenant was now seen afresh, as the law of love. The holy land of Messiah's reign was now seen anew to encompass all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the redeemed people of God, the renewed Israel, vindicated by the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, are commissioned to disciple all peoples to live like Jesus in obedience to what he taught. The one who holds sway over heaven and earth, who holds the unfolding story of the spiritual world and the physical world together, directs us, citizens of his kingdom, subjects of his law of love, to live into the personal and public transformative justice in the power of the spirit to the glory of God the Father. Well, how might we at WCF begin to live like this? How might our response to the needs of Afghan refugees and American families devastated by deadly floodwaters be the work of true transformative justice? How might the forming of our hearts shape the quality and the sustaining power of our response as we step into our responsibilities of setting things right, of seeing justice done? Well, one suggestion I have might be to come and see what God's spirit might have for us at the WCF retreat with Kathy Gathrow and Jeannie Herbert. You know, we try so hard to please God, striving to do good works, to affirm our identity as real Christians by living upright lives, by working at justice for marginalized souls, by seeking some for Christ. Perhaps... We need to know what it means to drop our oars and catch the wind. To stop striving to win God's approval for who we are and what we do. And start moving along with the wind of the spirit at our back. Finally, question three is about how the Syrophoenician woman received the gospel's story of transforming justice. I've now come to see, and I hope we can all recognize, that the strange incident with the Syrophoenician woman is really an explosive political kind of event. It's much more than simply an occurrence that documents Jesus' religious, miracle working credentials as God's son. We heard Mark recounting how Jesus challenges the Pharisees by declaring a new view of clean and unclean. And now, Here's a little girl with uncleanness. It Seems to me, Mark deliberately tells this story as a climax to Jesus' teaching on Jewish identity. Jesus' clean and unclean teaching undermined the centuries-old dividing walls that the Jews had erected around their own identity, crucially distinguishing themselves from the despised Gentiles. The dogs, and now, in a decidedly Gentile town, trying to low lie uh, lie low for a while, Jesus stud, in a miracle what he had just done with his teaching. He enacts, he embodies his teaching. The time for the ingathering of the Gentiles of all the nations will begin with Jesus's gospel announcement. I think this helps explain the odd exchange between Jesus and the woman. Though urgent and desperate on the woman's part, it nevertheless has the sound, uh, to me, of tit-for-tat banter. Notice how the woman accepts the indirect insult and then shrewdly turns it to her own advantage. I must mention at this point that some feminist theologians argue that the woman's clever response helped Jesus change his own Jewish outlook on foreigners in general and women, in particular. It's important to hear and consider such interpretation, especially when they give us insight into how Jesus of Nazareth grew in his understanding of his vocation as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But that deserves its own sermon. So putting that aside for the moment, I'm reminded of something Kirk Thompson suggested to me. There is never a time in the Gospels... When Jesus, in interacting with others, fails to take command of the situation, sometimes tenderly, quietly, sometimes boldly and aggressively, to press his gospel announcement that the kingdom of God is arriving in and through him. This, I would say, is precisely what is happening here. Through this short encounter with the woman, it looks to me is though Mark is quickly emphasizing what Jesus saw, both as his vocation and as the implications of his gospel announcement. First, his personal vocation was not to spread the gospel to the Gentile world, but to tell the Jewish people themselves that their long-awaited deliverance was at hand. Second, that if and when Israel was redeemed, That would be the time for the rest of the world to be brought under the saving, transforming justice of Israel's God, the world's creator. Jesus' response to the woman's urgent request and his answer to the woman's reply point to this. Upon completion of his own mission, the Gentiles would be brought in soon enough. But for the moment, it was vital that he not be distracted from his primary mission. You see, Jesus is not denying he's taking care. He does not deny that Gentiles in general, and this woman in particular, do have a claim on the healing love and justice of the one true God. He's being careful not to be drawn away from his work into other areas, even if those areas themselves are extensions of his work. At that moment, he doesn't need to be diverted from the difficult task to which he was called. A task (laughs) now more difficult due to the tight spot he's in with Jewish authorities due to his teaching in Galilee. A public healing in the Gentile city of Tyre would send all the wrong signals. In conclusion, I'd say that this story, in the words of N.T. Wright, is a sharp reminder to me, to us, that Jesus wasn't simply going around helping people. He had specific things to do. He had a limited time to do them. Jesus is not some cozy problem solver that we can call on. To see him that way misses the towering importance of his unique mission. And if Jesus must not be distracted from the messianic vocation that leads him to the cross, then can we, as his followers, be distracted from it either? The cross, the forgiveness of sin, stands at the heart of the gospel. I sometimes wonder whether I am too often distracted by my desire to spread as widely as possible the public healing gospel message of transformative justice. And I wonder, is WCF distracted? Sin and redemption are at the heart of the gospel's healing message. Perhaps we need from time to time to consider whether that admittedly God-given desire to work for peace and justice might too often distract us from the sin and redemption part of transforming justice. So I close with some questions that have bugged me as I worked on this sermon. Are we rejecting transforming justice? Are we upset that God's transforming justice doesn't match up with our religious identities? Am I, are we, like the Pharisees, dismissing the troubling personal ethical implications of Jesus' kingdom announcement because they don't quite fit nicely into my religious group's identity as progressive or as peacemakers, or as justice seekers. Is WCF talking about personal sin a lot less satisfying than being an activist congregation or being part of a welcoming congregation with dynamic outreach? Are we mistaking transforming justice? Are we confused that God's transforming justice doesn't vindicate our expectations of who we are? Am I, are we, like the disciples, confused, unhappy, maybe even angry with Jesus because his kingdom announcement is neither what I expected, as a four spiritual laws evangelical, nor does it seem to vindicate my social gospel expectations for prioritizing pressing issues of justice? Or knowing that our hope is in the Lord, will we keep our eyes on him? and receive his transforming justice? Are we so determined, above all else, to seek Jesus out and submit to whatever his word of justice might be, no matter how off-putting or disrespectful it might appear? Because we know his transforming justice heals people. It heals nations. Am I, are we, like the Syrophoenician woman, who, laying aside accepted cultural identities and real personal identity claims, comes for Jesus, submitting to all he might say or do with the tenacious purpose of receiving his blessing. My prayer is that I, you, and all of us together might keep our eyes on the Lord, might seek Jesus, above all else, laying at the foot of the cross our longings, desires, expectations, and even our righteous indignation to wait persistently for His healing word of grace, that we as a community of Jesus' followers might become a vital signpost of God's promised personal and public transforming justice which will be fully revealed in the coming new heavens and new earth.